0: The Schenectady home front in World War II, plus Schenectady and the Erie Canal. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Chris Leonard, Schenectady, New York historian, is our guest. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Chris.
1: Thank you, Bob. I'm happy to be here.
0: Chris Leonard is a native of Hamden, Connecticut. His parents were both history professors. He's lived in Schenectady for 16 years. He earned a degree at the University at Albany in history and English. He operates his own marketing firm, Wordsmith Promotions. In 2016, he was appointed, I'm sorry, in 2018, he was appointed city historian by Mayor Gary McCarthy. Now, Chris Leonard has contributed a series of articles to the Daily Gazette about Schenectady's experiences and the experiences of Schenectady people in World War II. Um, wh- why did you uh, uh, do this, or how did this come about?
1: Well, this year is the 75th anniversary of the end of uh, World War II, and it's a significant anniversary. I didn't really see much that was being planned or taking place around, uh, around that, and knowing Schenectady's you know, integral part in winning the war, it seemed like a natural thing to uh, write about and research and uh, provide to the community.
0: So you have, you covered a lot of ground in these articles. I've been uh, reading them. For example, you start off talking about how Schenectady heard about the start of uh, World War II for America, the attack on Pearl Harbor. How did that happen that
1: day? Well, when the attack on Pearl Harbor takes place, it, it, it begins at 7.48 a.m. Hawaiian Standard Time. So... That's quite a few hours before Schenectady, so, you know, Eastern Standard Time. So Schenectady doesn't hear about it until mid-afternoon. And, you know, when it comes over the airwaves that the, that the attack has taken place, I mean, Schenectady goes into, uh, you know, very much, very very quickly into a war footing.
0: Hmm. And I was uh, interested to have you say, because I'm an alum, I used to work with, at WGY, WGY was the station that did break the news, basically, in Schenectady.
1: Yeah, that is correct. Yeah.
0: And did life change right away for people in Schenectady? Or it must have been such an odd time or something like that.
1: Well, the interesting thing about it is, at the, at the very beginning, you know, at the, just after Pearl Harbor, Schenectady doesn't change very much immediately, uh, mostly because the major industrial powerhouses of the city, Alco, and General Electric were already deeply uh, preparing and providing material for war, um, supporting um, the War the War Productions Act and a number of other uh, organizations that were providing uh, military support for our allies. So in that sense, there isn't a huge ramping up that starts because it's already going on. But in terms of the city, um, all of the soldiers and sailors who were in the city uh, immediately lose their their leave and are called to active units, and the draft starts. And additionally, um, a lot of organizations begin to form up to support the, the soldiers. And volunteers are, are, are volunteering for these organizations begins almost immediately.
0: Schenectady at the time had two major manufacturing plants if you will general electric which is is still there even though it it doesn't employ as many people as it did then and a company that's long gone it's where they built the casino uh the american locomotive company true i mean those are the major industries in schenectady
1: oh absolutely they were yes
0: and both of them were involved as you say in making uh things for world war ii uh, Uh, Maybe we'll talk about each of them separately. But uh, let me ask you about this map you found uh, in the Schenectady archives, a a map that GE made showing where its workers lived. Sounds a little intrusive, but why did they want to know?
1: Well, the map itself, it's a a stunning hand-drawn colored map um, of basically the entire capital region and a little bit beyond and what the basic the basis of this uh, map was they noted where every single person who worked for general electric lived uh... within the capital within the greater capital district and they marked the all the their houses off by shape based on the the shift that they worked and how many people in a given home worked for GE. now the reason the reason for the map was it was 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 there were a few reasons actually the first was just so that they could note the fastest way for their employees to get to the plant so that nothing would be disturbed, um, so that the plant could move at, uh, at, at its fastest rate at all times. Secondly, it allowed them also, as rationing came in, to connect um, employees mm. so that they could carpool in and thereby use less fuel. Mm. And it also yeah, made that's... sure that um, if, if for some reason... Uh, a roadway was blocked, they could immediately relay to their employees other ways to get to the plant as quickly as possible.
0: Switching over to the other major employer, which was out on Erie Boulevard in this Schenectady, American Locomotive, they were told, and from what you say, they already were doing this, yes, keep making locomotives, but only when they're essential to the war effort. But at some point, they made... Other kinds of war machines—they made actually actual war machines, did they not? I don't know if they made tanks, but armored yeah, vehicles.
1: The uh, the Alco plant. First off, the um, to, an- to answer the first part of that question. Um, early on during the war, the War Production Board, which took control of all industrial endeavors in the country, um, passed passed regulations about uh, building locomotives. And making sure that the materials that needed to be used, which were being rationed, um, were only directed towards incredibly important uh, endeavors. Like Alco was not allowed to just randomly make locomotives for, you know, Union Pacific or others. Uh, their aims were pu- were pushed more towards uh, developing um, locomotives for use in the military, in in the army and the navy. And also, they were still allowed to make locomotives for important runs like. In 1941, they they are are still allowed to make the big boy locomotives in 1941 and 42, because it was crucial. Those locomotives were crucial in getting West Coast produce to the middle of the country. Um, But in terms of um, weaponry, uh, Alco built both the the M3 Lee tank and the M4 Sherman tank, and later on would uh, also build the M7 tank. Additionally, they were while they didn't actually build ha- full howitzers, they were working on components uh, for the various sizes of um, howitzer, which are cannons. Basically, the, uh, the the rifling of the cannons themselves.
0: So, so they did build tanks at, at Alco.
1: Yes, and self-propelled guns.
0: And they were uh, well. I think both GE and Alco they were maybe took part in this, but they received awards during the war from the government for their war production?
1: Yes. um, GE received a number of awards from the Navy uh, for the work they were doing, as did ALCO. Both of them were deeply involved in um, developing – well, well, GE was for uh, turbines uh, for both uh, the Merchant Marine and the Navy. and. Alco did uh, did quite, quite a bit of the same, although a lot of their work went over to the British Merchant Marines.
0: I don't know. This is a little bit off the plow or the furrow we're plowing, but uh, I was just interested to read the names of the politicians who were involved in Schenectady then. There was the governor, who was Herbert Lehman, and the mm-hmm. mayor was Mills Ten Eyck. Um, I would say probably a man of Dutch heritage. I... I now, I've lived in Schenectady now for over 40 years, or the Schenectady area in Glenville. Um, I don't remember a Dutch mayor, but they had <laughs> they had one then.
1: Oh yeah, he certainly. I mean, he certainly was, and the Ten Eyck family had uh, had a long history, um, not quite back to the original settlers of Schenectady, but early ones.
0: And then the city manager was C. A. Harrell, and I, I do recall that that for the longest time, uh, Schenectady's government had a mayor who was an elected official, but the real heavy lifting was done by a city manager, which they don't have anymore.
1: Yeah, that was an interesting period in Schenectady that went on for about 30 years where they had the two, almost 40 years actually, where they had the two um, sort of coexisting and working together. Uh,
0: Back to the industries. So ALCO is making locomotives when needed, also making tanks and other armored vehicles. Uh, you, you wrote, I believe, that General Electric, it, it maybe takes a little more explanation. They did not make tanks or bombers, but they did produce a great deal of um, products for the war effort. Can you tell us about some of them?
1: Right. Uh, General, General Electric's contributions were not glamorous. I mean, as I said, they weren't building tanks. They weren't building planes or ships. But they were building massive components and instrumentation and electrical devices that went into all of these, uh, these uh, machines, as well as a bunch of other different um, appliances and support materials. Um, they provided almost, I mean, a significant amount of the Navy's um, turbine propulsion uh, for new grades of warships that were being created, as well as uh, tanks tankers um, that were delivering oil and keeping ships going, which especially during the early days of the uh, Atlantic Theater when the, the uh, Nazi Wolfpack submarines were sinking a lot of convoys, um, tanks tankers were very much wallowing tubs, and the propulsion devices they created for a new generation of tankers made them faster and more efficient so that they could stay within the convoys mm-hmm. and the convoys wouldn't have to slow down so much to keep them uh, protected and, and thereby make themselves uh, you know, greater targets.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: mm -hmm. Oh, go right ahead.
0: No, I was going to say, also, did not GE work on radar?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. GE did a significant amount of work in radar. In fact, uh, their work on radar goes back into the 1930s uh, with a gentleman by the name of Chester Rice, who was the son of uh, GE's first president, uh, Edwin Rice, Edwin Rice Jr., and he, in the, in the mid-1930s, it was, uh, actually, he lived on a house, uh, in, in a house on um, Lowell Road. In 1935, I believe it was, he was testing his device in his, in his front parlor, shooting beams of uh, acoustic waves out into the street, and he was able to get them to bounce back off of cars coming by. So he thereby, this was sort of the first practical test of radar in the United States. And once that was done, in the continuing years, they really, you know, worked with the technology itself, and by 1940, were, you know, had developed radar stations that could actually pick up planes that were flying in, uh, and all kinds of other uh, uses. And most notably, it was it, it so its first real strong use during the Battle of Britain in 1940, in the summer of 1940, uh, when German planes were coming across the Channel to bomb England in, you know, all throughout the country, and radar stations that had been set up were able to were able to see these bombers coming in. So that uh, RAF fighters could uh, could mobilize and, and shoot them down. And one of my favorite parts of this tale of this story is that the British media was told not to let the Nazis know that this existed, these radar stations. So they started spinning a tale that uh, British pilots loved to eat carrots, which improved their eyesight. Huh. And that's where that mythology comes from in an attempt to hide radar.
0: Again back in uh, Schenectady in World War II and we're talking with uh, Chris Leonard who's Schenectady city historian, the many men are being drafted into the military or enlisting uh, and so Schenectady also becomes a center does it not for women in the workplace?
1: Oh absolutely. Now for, I mean first off you do have men who are being drafted and volunteering so the uh, the male workforce in the city as well as the country is, is depleted. And what remains of it is put under the control of two different organizations, and they stipulate specifically what, what in each individual male employee can do, and those male employees are not allowed to change jobs or to move outside of their, their, their cities uh, without prior approval. So this creates a huge, uh, back, you know, a huge vacuum of employment, especially within industry. Now, women in the workforce had been, you know, had been in the workforce for a long time, but most of what they were doing was in the secretarial pools or in non-technical positions. Mm-hmm. Once the sol- once the male soldiers go off to war, um, they are pressed into service very quickly and end up on factory lines, working aside, uh, alongside men or um, in place of them. And you know, in in GE specifically, you know, they're doing very technical work, winding armatures for turbines. Um, building um, electrical components for instrumentation, uh, all these kind of things. And, they're, and they do it very well, and they keep the production moving forward. Um, and, uh, you know, the one interesting thing, oh there's many interesting things about this, but one unfortunate thing about this, if you look at it, is that in many industries where they were either replacing or working alongside men, the companies were paying them less than they did their male
0: employees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What happened after the war? I mean, did the women keep those jobs?
1: No, for the most part, women once uh, once the soldiers began to began mm-hmm. to return and were they were given back their jobs along the the, the, uh, the factory lines, and other technical positions. Women were then returned to the secretarial pools, or the you know the telephone lines, or things like that, or just outright fired if there was nowhere for them.
0: Hmm. And we've been talking about the home front, but these men who are drafted, uh, many of them die, and or. And, and suffer. There was a great human cost to the war around the country, including in Schenectady.
1: Yep, Schenectady County's official tally of uh, of, of war dead is uh, 403 people, and uh, there is there isn't an official tally that I've come across of wounded, but it's many many times uh, what the the uh, the dead would be.
0: You talked about rationing and getting the workers to work. Another uh, well, 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 two things. There in Schenectady, there was an effort uh, on civil defense to black out the city uh, so that it couldn't be a target for um, enemy bombers. That happened rather early on in the war, did it not?
1: Yes. I mean, the fir- uh, Pearl Harbor takes place on uh, December 7th, 1941. And the first um, air raid test in Schenectady takes place in March of that year. Uh, it was well known at the time that uh, the, the Nazis were looking to find ways to bomb the United States. It would take them a few years to develop bombers that could do that, although they were never actually used because it was very much towards the end of the war. But they were certainly planned, and Schenectady was high up on those lists of places to destroy because of the production of, of specifically of GE and Alco. So in that first test... Uh, you know the basic the basic idea was just to have every every light turned off in the city to make it as dark as possible. Uh, blackout curtains, which were of a thick black material, were also used in homes and places that needed uh, to continue working, uh, just to try to block out as much light as possible. So when that first when the siren goes off for the first test, um, you have uh, Mills Ten Eyck and C. A. Harrell up on top of the Van Curler. Uh, Hotel, which is now uh, SUNY Schenectady, uh, looking out over the city to see what takes place. And ALCO goes off, but only for a minute, because it still needs to uh, continue its its production. Uh, GE goes off for a short period of time as well. And I think the whole test takes less than five minutes. But while, he, while a lot of the city was blacked out, so coming up from State Street, from Albany and, and, and through Colony and the like, you see this line of lights coming to Schenectady, and then it just stops because of mm. the, the blackout.
0: How about so that? Once this, and also, the- uh, General Electric, <clears throat> one of their scientists, developed a smoke that was useful t- uh, to obscure the, the ground uh, against enemy attack?
1: Yes. Um, Irving S. Langmuir, who was the 1932 <laughs> Nobel Prize winner for chemistry, Uh, worked for GE from 1909 to 1950. And during the war, he develops the M1 portable smoke generator. Now, what this device does is it just, you know, it spews out black smoke and can be used to, uh, you know, hide installations and hide various uh, places that could be either bombed or attacked from bombers flying above. And these are made in various sizes and shipped throughout the country and around the world. And in fact, one of the most famous uses of it is that they were able to black out the entire Panama Canal using these devices, huh, so that uh, it couldn't it couldn't be bombed, it couldn't be found, and because the uh, the, the Panama Canal was such an important link between uh, the Atlantic and the Pacific, and and uh, sending both war material and trade goods, so protecting it was nope. very important.
0: Now we come to the end of the war in 1945 war ends first with Germany and then with with Japan later in the year after the atomic bombing of Japan did GE have anything to do with development of the atomic
1: bomb GE actually has has is involved with the development of the atomic bomb it provides support to the Hanford test facility which is out in Washington state where plutonium is being developed into is being enriched and developed into bombs. They also provide support to the Oak Ridge facility in Tennessee, uh, where the research is being done into how to uh, set up critical mass and mm. uh, and allow bombs to perform.
0: And as you talked about the beginning of the war, uh, the end of the war, um, the announcement comes in August, correct? And what happened in Schenectady?
1: Well, the war it's, the war itself comes to an end on August 14th. But on August thirteenth, Schenectady and a lot of the country receive um, an erroneous report that the war has ended, and so the, the, the early celebration is tempered. And it's very interesting because the exact same thing happened in World War One: the day before armistice was declared, uh, news had gone out that the war had ended. So hmm. the expectations of the war ending were there, but when it finally when when it finally comes over the radio uh, on the fourteenth that. Uh, Truman declares Japanese war over uh, and the city just blows off all the steam that it possibly can. A huge celebration takes place. People all across the, all across the city rush into the streets and they're celebrating. Cars are driving around and with, uh, with tin cans tied to the back making noise. Uh, downtown buildings, there's paper and confetti flying out of them. Uh, General Electric is blowing its, horn, is, is blowing its work horns. Uh, churches throughout the city are, are ringing their bells. GE, which has about a th- about 3,000 people working at the time uh, of the declaration, shuts down immediately, and those 3,000 people rush out straight up Erie Boulevard. Uh, across town, you have all of those who are working at Alco, which also shuts down, go out into the streets on the other end of Erie and begin to party. And mm. traffic begins to slow with people in the streets and then stops completely. Uh, police and firemen are sent out to Keep, sing- keep order. Um, the Schenectady Railway Company puts it, sends out all of its buses to be able to manoe- maneuver people around the city since most of the streets are blocked up. So the celebration goes on till about uh, 2 a.m.
0: Hmm. Now, let me ask you, you did this uh, report on uh, Schenectady in World War II for Daily Gazette articles. Will the articles be available or are they online or they're online on the Gazette, I presume?
1: Yeah, off all all of the so all of the articles are online at uh, on the Daily Gazette. Uh, they can still be found there.
0: We're talking with Chris Leonard, who is a Schenectady city historian. Uh, something completely different, but also involving the history of uh, Schenectady. You uh, did a talk uh, this summer up to Skehari Crossing State Historic Site and maybe elsewhere on uh, Schenectady and the Erie Canal. Uh, schenectady was an important part of the canal
1: Uh, schenectady was was an enormous part of the canal um and i say that not just as a schenectady city historian uh trying to tout the town but schenectady was a very important portion of it uh as the canal comes up from albany and makes its way you know through cohoes and into schenectady this is the westward turn where everything begins to head all the way out to buffalo uh, at the end of Schenectady was lock 23 on the original canal, which was the busiest cana- uh, lock on the entire canal. So yes, that gateway to the west was you know, was extremely important.
0: What was the um, you' know, you're gonna, you've, again you did a talk this summer at the Skii crossing where there's an aqueduct that um, where the canal crossed the Skihari Creek. What was the Rexford aqueduct?
1: Well the Erie Canal had six major aqueducts Of 200 feet or more that crossed it, and uh, somewhere in the mid 20s of smaller aqueducts, basically because when you have a man-made river running, you can't put it into an actual river because it's going to change the whole the whole function of of what's taking place. So, the you know just like we run uh, you know bridges over highways and the like, uh, these aqueducts were run over the canal. So. Of the six major uh, canal breaks, the Aqueduct Canal, uh, the uh, the uh, the Aqueduct, um, the Rexford Aqueduct, was the fifth smallest out of out of those six. But it's a very technically difficult stretch because as you're coming in along the uh, the canal itself, you've got the uh, Rexford Hills on the right, and then you make that big long left turn across the canal, and then immediately take a, a a jarring right turn. Uh, to go head up Aqueduct Road and head into Schenectady. Mm-hmm.
0: But the point of that aqueduct, was it not or was it to cross the Mohawk River?
1: That is correct. Okay. Yeah, So it was to cross the Mohawk River. And um, it was built of, goodness, I can't remember the exact date. I want to say it was in the 1840s and then mm-hmm. reworked in the 1890s. It, okay. it, it finally goes out of use in, I think, about 1915, 1916. Um, but it isn't taken down completely until 1965 because there was some thought early on that they may want to use the canal again. And you can still mm-hmm. see some piers of it if you cross over the uh, the new uh, bridge there.
0: I don't think Schenectady was the only upstate city where this happened. But Erie Boulevard, you know, a big uh, street in Schenectady, was the canal. That's where the canal went through downtown.
1: Yep, that's, that is correct. And both Syracuse and Buffalo also have Erie. Streets or Erie Boulevards. In fact, anywhere along the run of the canal, if you are on something called Erie, you are on the old canal.
0: Okay. Well, Chris Leonard, you certainly have been busy. i we just have a little time left. I was uh, how has the uh, pandemic affected uh, your life or work as Schenectady City historian?
1: Well, in the you know, back in March when this all, you know before this all broke, um, probably the first week of March, uh, I was working in the Efner History Center with uh, Cindy Seacord, the city, the city of Schenectady archivist. And we were reading the news that was coming in about it from around the world as it was beginning to hit in um, Seattle. And we both kind of looked at each other and said, this is something we need to start recording because it, it, it might be something big. And then by a week later on uh, March 12th, everything starts shutting down. So we were already in a position where we were tracking it. And we have a very good... Um, collection of materials on COVID-19 at the Ebner Center. We've also been, you know, all of the, the, everything the government, local government has done and the regional government has done, announcements from businesses, from churches, from all kinds of organizations. We've been collecting those so that in the future there is a researchable uh, database of what happened during COVID-19. And it's Mm -hmm. also interesting to note that the Schenectady Historical Society is doing something similar. But whereas we are focused on um, governmental business and the, econ- the economy, they're focused a lot more on social history and cultural history. So between hmm. the two of us, we're going to have a really great archive of Schenectady during COVID-19.
0: Also, you've you not been able to get out and about and do talks and things like that.
1: No, and it's, you know, it, it, uh, you know I, I usually am doing my GE plot tours at this time of year, and I'm usually giving a number of talks around at different organizations and I haven't been able to do that. and I know that's what I really that you know I love the research, and I love you know I love helping people out, but I really like giving the talk.
0: One other point from Chris Leonard, the final installment in his story about World War II and Schenectady, took a look at General Electric's involvement in the early atomic age. Apparently, GE had done some work on development of the first two atomic bombs that were dropped on Japan, and shortly after the end of the war, the War Department approached GE to build a nuclear research facility, and GE started building CAPL, the Knowles Atomic Power Lab, which was situated next to the new GE Research Lab in Niskayuna. Future President Jimmy Carter uh, worked at CAPL from 1952 to 1953. CAPL's original mission was to develop ways to separate and enhance uranium and plutonium. In 1950, the mission changed to developing reactors for nuclear submarines, and Kappel developed a second facility in southern Saratoga County called the Kenneth A. Kesselring Site in West Milton. Chris Leonard is the city historian of Schenectady. He can be reached at C. Leonard at SchenectadyNY.gov. This has been the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.